Everyone open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We are in a study of the book of... Revelation. Thank you very much. So we jumped into this whole uh, study of church history last week. As we've already kind of covered, we won't go back into it, but we see that John is transported through time to the day of the rapture, and he's able to see everything that took place over the last 2,000 years of human history, and he is commissioned by God himself to do what? Writes the things that he sees, the things that he has seen, and the things that he is going to see. And here we are, to this day, reading his obedience. So last week we kicked things off at church history talking about the church at Ephesus. And does anybody remember, what does Ephesus mean? What was this church known as? Ephesus literally means, James, you think you got it? Uh, I don't have the meaning, but I okay. remember it didn't have something to do with philosophy, like the, or philosophy, I should say. In a way, there were uh, some people who strayed from the Word of God. They, they started to elevate philosophy above the words of God and, in a sense, replaced it. That's good. At least I know that someone was paying attention in here. Sam? Fully purposed. The word Ephesus, it means fully purposed. And we kind of saw that a little bit. How and We actually kind of... No, glossed over it. As I was kind of mentioning to you guys, uh, church history is usually like a 14-week class that we do here for the adults, and I'm trying to condense it down into seven weeks because we're kind of limited on time, and plus, there's so many details of history, I think it would probably bore some of you, and I decided instead, let's just hone it in onto the really key things, the real key things to take away from each church period. Um, but one of the things we kind of glossed over that we take more time on in the adults is that these guys did start out well. I mean, we kind of saw, let's look at, uh, look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Jesus Christ himself is saying, hey, I know your works. I know the labor that you put forth and you're patient. And you can't bear them which are evil. We saw they had a lot of good things about them. We saw that they actually were a hardworking church. And that's where we kind of, we spend more time of that in the adult class. But man, they were the disciple makers. These were the disciples and the saved people of the apostles that carried on what the apostles, what Paul and John and James, what they all left for them. That was this church. They started out well. They were fully purposed. They knew what they had to do. They received a commission from God Himself, and they started to carry out that mission. But there's a really important principle of life, and I think we can see it here with Ephesus. Just because you start out well doesn't really mean a whole lot if you don't finish well. You know, it's interesting. We have Wyatt in Jiu-Jitsu right now, and one of the main things that they teach in one of the core tenets is the word commitment and the way that they define it for kids to understand is very clearly you finish what you start commitment to be fully purposed you need to finish what you start that's what commitment means and when i think about commitment or rather when you guys think of commitment what should come to your mind camp commitments winter camp summer camp so how are you doing here we are, wow, two months now removed from winter camp and the things that God was speaking to you then just two months ago. How are you doing with that? For those of you guys who were here at summer camp last year and the things that God stirred in your heart of what He wants you to do, how are you doing with those commitments? Are you finishing what God began at you a year ago? Half a year ago? Two months ago? This is where we can be very much like Ephesus if we're not careful. We can start out very, very well but it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And we also saw, regarding this church, they recognized that there was this certain priest class, this certain uh, group of people that kind of elevated themselves above the commoners, and they kind of lorded over God's common men and women. What was that name called again? It's a kind of a tricky one. Nicolaitans, which simply, you break it down, Nico. Conqueror, laitans, the laity, or the common man. Common, everyday folk like you and me. Average, ordinary, everyday Joes and Jills. I want to be all-inclusive there. They recognized the Nicolaitans, yet they fell away. They, they, instead of holding fast to the form of sound words, they started using phrases and concepts and ideals and principles of God 
But these concepts and principles and ideals, they kind of sounded biblical and Christian-y, but weren't really based in the Bible at all. And after a couple of decades and years go by, what happens? You have these doctrines and you have this belief system that is organized and set up that has absolutely nothing to do with the Bible. And that's how they fell away. We've got to be very, very careful. And as we saw last week also, there was a school that, that really just majored on this, really just emphasized this whole idea of this metaphorical or allegorical reading and studying and interpreting of the Bible. And it was a school based in where? Alexandria, Egypt. And who was the head honcho, the headmaster of that school who started this whole thing? What was his name? Origin, Adam Anchus Origin. The origin of all the false doctrine that we see being taught in, te- in churches today goes back to origin. It's an easy way to remember it. So tonight we're going to begin looking at Smyrna. But before we begin, you know, Sam kind of introduced things a little bit by asking how everyone's week was going. Anybody in here just having like an awful week? Or did anybody have like a really, really bad day recently? Anybody kind of have like just a rough day where you're like, man... I'm just getting beat up and worn out. Anyone? I see a couple hands. Yeah, same here. There are a couple days where I felt like my teeth were just getting kicked in, and I'm like, man, this is the worst day ever. Anybody make the mistake of shouting that out? Good. Because when I think about people having a bad day, I think about something like this, where this big guy and three of his friends got into a newly built Montana house and proceeded to live there for a month before they were found by the original owners. Think you're having a bad day? Can you imagine going in and seeing that in your brand new house that you and your family have been building for a while? That would stink. And also, I'd be a little terrified if I saw that in my living room. It's just a cow that is a behemoth in a small enclosed space. They're gentle. Think you're having a bad day? Those of you going to Mexico, don't make this mistake this summer. Leaving their passport in a stall and then leaving on your flight. The worst part is if they put down sanitation paper on the toilet. I'll look into that. I'll have an answer for you next week. Oh, oh. This guy stuck his head into a hole in a tree to take a look. Guess what he found? Yeah. Think you're having a bad day? <laughs> what about this guy? Why are there police? They're EMTs trying to help him because he's about to have a really bad day. Apparently, he was golfing. He was golfing. He was probably looking for his ball, and it got lost. Probably looking for it. Whoops. <laughs> Think you're having a bad day? Imagine being the cars following the procession of this funeral. Yeah. Imagine being the driver of said vehicle. Yeah, I'm not so worried about them as much as I would be being the driver. Your bad day just started. <laughs> <laughs> there was one I saw that I almost uh, included it where there was a truck on the highway that had two of these on the back of it. It was like a flatbed truck. had two of these on the back of it. And there was like a Corvette right behind the truck. And as the truck was driving, it was going against the bridge. And the bridge definitely, those porta potties were not going to clear the bridge at all. And this car was way close. I almost included that, but I decided, ah, this one's cooler. Oh, no. Anybody do this mistake? Oh, uh, yeah. Have your window open and a snowstorm come? Oh, no. no. I don't think it was either. When people ask me how life is going. Is that Biden? You think you're having a bad day? Consider this poor horse. 
How did he get up there? Is what I want to know. Huh? A crane. A crane. So, you might have had a bad day this week. I might have had a bad day this week. But I guarantee you, not nearly as bad as most of the people in those pictures there. You know, there's a there's a saying. Although I don't know if that's true necessarily in this class when you have someone like Andy in the back, Mr. One-Liner back there, but there's a saying that whenever you kind of start a message off with something comical and funny that you're supposed to laugh it up because it's probably the last laugh you're going to get tonight. So not to bring it into a, a, a dour um, moment, but uh, tonight is kind of interesting as we look into the next church period, Smyrna. That takes place approximately, again, leaving off or picking up right where we left off last week, around 200 AD, and it ends around 325 AD. In fact, that's one of the few ones that we can pinpoint certainly ends in 325 AD because there is a major historical significant event that happens that year that coincides beautifully with the start of the next church period. But when we talk about it being a, a dour moment and just kind of Blech, kind of circumstances what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, look no further than what the name Smyrna actually means on your outline. Smyrna literally means myrrh. M-Y-R-R-H. Now, does that word sound familiar to anybody? Why? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's one of the gifts that they gave Christ at the moment of His birth. I don't know. Do you guys have one blank on your outline there? Or do you have two? All right. Because this word Smyrna, not only does it mean myrrh, but the reason why it's called myrrh has to do with the herb itself. And it has this very bitter aroma and taste to it. So bitterness is your second blank. Smyrna literally translates to myrrh, and myrrh, it was this costly perfume that was made from this bitter gum in the Middle Eastern tree. And you know what they used it for in the Middle East? Smelling salts. Not smelling salts. <laughs> Embalming. Nicodemus brought myrrh to the tomb of Christ after he was dead to help with the preparation of the body. It was used for that purpose. It was used to help get rid of the stench of death. And man, did it create this aroma that kind of helped ease things down. But as much as it tried to, to take away the, the smell of death, when you smelled that, that, that beautiful scent, you couldn't help but think of the fact that someone died. Death. It's associated with death. It's associated with bitterness. And it has a very interesting connection to Jesus, not only at His birth, but also at His death. If you haven't seen it from last week, you certainly will tonight, but there's this theme that goes on for all seven of the letters of the churches in church history, where the characteristics of that time period beautifully mirror and line up with the definition of what each church period means. Last week was fully purposed. We saw that to a degree. And tonight we're going to see just how bitter, how bitter this time period really was. The next bullet point on your outline, you can clearly see, it's the era of persecutions from the pagan Roman Empire. And as we saw last week, each of these periods, they have a specific attack method that Satan has. Because again, as God is moving to establish his plan and purpose throughout history, Satan is always countering him, coming against him. That's what church history really is. You can't just look at the works of God. You have to look at the works of Satan and how he countered it. It's important to see. His attack method in this period is severe persecution. And what I find interesting is that even though it was bitter here, it's bitter because of the persecution, it's bitter because of the death of loved ones that people were experiencing, that the disciples and that Bible believers throughout this time period were experiencing. Even though it was bitter, what's bitter here has a different scent altogether to God. I don't know if you've ever seen these verses before or if you've ever pondered what they meant, but write down Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2 where he says, walk in love 
as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us and what? An offering and a sacrifice to God, death, for a what? Sweet-smelling savor. You see, even though it was bitter and it hurt God the Father's heart to put His only begotten Son to death, God the Father knew, my Son is doing this to pay the price for the sins of all the world. He's paying a price that nobody else could pay except through eternal separation from me. The fact that my Son was willing to go through this smells good because he is forever dealing with sin once and for all. His death on the cross did that. Even though it's a death and it's associated with that, from God's perspective, it smelled real good. And then Philippians 4.18, not just with Jesus Christ, but with us. Paul says, but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. You know what people sent to Paul in his great time of need? Offerings. An offering of sacrifice. Whether it be a gift, whether it was a, a love offering of payment. And again, people didn't have much money back then. And they gave abundantly to the work of the ministry that he was doing. They sacrificed you know what's dying when you sacrifice to give? Your pride, your flesh, you wanting to do things your way. You're putting it to death. And that sacrifice, even though, oh, it's bitter to do that, I don't want to give more away, or I don't want to give up my time to go on this trip, or to, I don't want to give up my, my service and my talents to, to serve in a local area in the ministry. I'm going to die to self and I'm going to surrender to Christ. And that sacrifice is an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. You see, even though this was a time of great bitterness and death, from God's perspective, mm, it smelled good. We're going to see why by the end of tonight. So, Satan's method, method was severe persecution. He used persecution and public pressure and opinion, you might want to underline that, to stop the saved from doing the work of the Lord, which is evangelism and discipleship. You know, the very thing that you and I just went through about a month ago as to what the philosophy of solid actually means. It's the very thing that we are supposed to be doing as a youth ministry evangelizing the lost to win them the saving faith in Christ, and then taking those converts and discipling them to do the same. That's what Satan was coming against. Their mission is our mission today. You imagine if you were alive back in 200 AD? Imagine if Solid was around back then? We'd be on the run. We'd be hunted. The mission didn't change. It was the exact same thing. That's what they were being persecuted for. And how did he do that? He used persecution and public pressure and opinion to stop the lost from receiving Christ. So not only did he try to go after the saved and prevent them from doing the work of the Lord, he also used it to try to stop and persuade the lost to not have anything to do with Jesus Christ or Christianity. Because if you see some of the things that they went through, just know this is what awaits you if you decide to convert over to that, that religion Christianity. That's how they present it to people. Very, very blatantly and very out in the open. And again, I had you underline public pressure and opinion. Because, man, I'll tell you what, this is probably more prevalent now than probably ever before. Public pressure, public opinion, the information war that's going on on social media right now, not just with disinformation or misinformation, but even just influencers trying to tell you how to be, how to live, how to look, what to think, what to say, how to go about your day-to-day -day life. It is constantly riddled throughout social media. And whether you realize it or not, it is constantly affecting your mind as far as how to be, who to be, what to think, what to dress like, who should your friends be. Constantly bombarding you with that, whether you realize it or not. 
It is huge right now. And as we saw, I mean, you know, there are people... Anybody here watch The Mandalorian? Star Wars nerds? All right, a couple of you. Mm, kind of. There's a character on there played by former UFC fighter Gina Carano. Tell me, is she still on that show? No. Why? Because she dared to share her opinion on something that wasn't popular and goes with the norm. Didn't flow with what the establishment thinks and feels and wants the general public to understand. So what do they do? They canceled her. They put a stigma on her and made everybody think that, oh, she is not one you should be looking to. She is not one. Oh, she spoke her mind. Oh, man, what is she speaking about? Oh, things that go against what we say. Things that go against what the government says. Things that go against the established norm. In other words, other people are deciding that's not someone you should follow. And so we're going to do everything we can to kind of persuade culture to push her aside so that she has no more relevance whatsoever. Just because she dared to speak her mind. And what's interesting is that's happening right now. And all she is is, okay, maybe not on a Star Wars show. She's not on Disney anymore. But do you understand that that's how it starts? You know what she got canceled for? Making a post on social media talking about how when the Jews ended up going into the Holocaust, it, it didn't start with the Nazis. It started with their own neighbors. It started with their neighbors ratting them out, saying, hey, they're Jews. They're different from us. And she was using it as a comparison between people who are pro-mask and people who are anti-mask and how the pro-masks would call out and ostracize the anti-masks or the anti-vaxxers. That's what she got canceled for. Believe what you want. That's the beautiful thing about this country. She was sharing her opinion about that and then what happened? People ostracized her and made her feel different. Everything she was posting about what happened in Nazi Germany is what started to happen with her. Now granted, she still has her life, but that's how it starts. That's how it happened back then in the Holocaust. That's how it happened back during this period of time. And as we saw last week in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. What's happened before is happening now. History repeats itself. So if you think the things that we're going to look at tonight, what happened to our brothers and sisters in Christ who believe the exact same things you and I believe today can't happen to you and I today, just look at what happens with cancel culture on a much smaller level. And just know it starts there. And then it goes bigger. It always starts small. And it gets bigger. We'll see that tonight. Now let's go ahead and see what God himself has to say. Enough background about it. Let's see what he has to say, actually, about this church period. I need a reader. Actually, I need four readers. All right, Carson, verse 8. Sam, verse 9. Caleb, verse 10. Kendall, verse 11. Go ahead, Carson. Everybody in Revelation chapter two. And unto the angel of the church, and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write these things: saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Short letter. Last week was seven verses. This is four verses, but it's a short time frame. And you have everything you need to know about this time period. First things first, I love how in verse 8, look how he starts it off again. Every letter, Jesus Christ introduces himself to this church period by presenting a character trait of himself that he wants this church period to know. It's something that they need to know given what they're going through in this time in history. And he says, And the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. You know what I love? Write down 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 and 19. There's a beautiful passage in there 
where Paul is working through some of these misguided Corinthians who had this belief that Jesus Christ hadn't actually risen from the grave. And as a result of them believing that, they were walking through life miserable. They had no hope because everything that they put their faith and trust in this guy, if he's dead, well, I guess that would make him either a liar or a lunatic or maybe he actually did raise again from the dead and he is Lord. He is who he said he is. If you'd like to know more about that, come out tomorrow night to our area study. Sorry, little shameless plug there. But as he was, as the Corinthians were going through all of this, they were struggling with this and Paul says, yeah, you know what? If Jesus Christ isn't risen from the dead, then we are most miserable because that means we're still in our sin. If Christ hadn't risen from the dead, then he's not God which means he didn't pay the price for our sin. He's just a normal guy. So we are miserable. You know what? Because Christ, and we know that Christ has risen from the dead, you can go to his grave. You see that it's not there. Even though there were Roman centurions guarding it, they sealed the tomb with pitch so that no one could break in. His body ain't there. He's not dead. We know that. So because we know that, we have hope. We have nothing to be miserable in. We have nothing to fear. Jesus Christ is letting this church know, hey, I know it may seem as though things are utterly hopeless for you right now. And we're going to see in just a little bit how hopeless it really truly was for them. But he's letting them know, hey, it seems hopeless. But understand, I was dead and I'm alive. I am the beginning and I am the ending. You serve a risen God who can do anything, who can do the impossible. If you were going through immense tribulation, if you were really down and you were just going through just awful things that it feels like nobody else in my youth ministry understands, nobody else gets me, nobody else gets what I'm going through. If you feel like that tonight, like some of these Christians did, you can have hope in knowing that you serve a risen God who knows exactly what you've been through, who knows exactly what you're going through. He cares, and He is an advocate who listens to everything that you need to know and hear. And if we come to Him, and we believe that He is, and He's a rewarder of those who diligently search Him in Hebrews 11, we'll see, man, you know what? What good news. The God who is in charge of everything is the God who rose again from the grave. There's nothing too hard for Him, no matter the persecution or the troubles that you go through in life. That's how He kicks things off to these guys. And trust me, they needed to hear it. As we saw last week, there's a commendation and a condemnation for most all of these churches. So kick things off with a commendation. Look again in verse 9. He says, I know thy works. Oh, and tribulation, an immense time of testing, an immense trial. And he says, and poverty, you're poor, you're, you have everything stripped from you, you have everything taken away, but thou art rich. More on that in a little bit. And he says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. These guys, we'll get to them in a little bit, but they're in the same camp. They're the same kind of false disciples as the Nicolaitans that we covered last week. They're carrying on throughout it. But on your outline, we see that during this period, Christians suffered 10 rounds of persecution by the hand of Rome. This church was filled with workers and they suffered tribulation and poverty. Now look here. It says Rome, and I forgot your blank there. The hand of Rome slash the devil, because he already said they're of the synagogue of Satan. Well, who was in charge of the known world back then? It was the Roman Empire. Jesus Christ, here in Revelation 2, is equating Rome and the Roman Empire with Satan and the works of the devil. Might want to mark that down. And again, verse 10, I find something very, very fascinating that Caleb read. Jesus is saying, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. The devil, Rome, shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation. How long? 
10 days. Well, wouldn't you know, by coincidence, I'm sure, that the entire time of the Roman Empire was in charge, that there were 10 historical, documented persecutions that happened against Christians throughout the time of the pagan Roman Empire. And I say the pagan Roman Empire because, again, more on this next week. 325 AD, there was a change in the guard. There was an 11th leader who would come and kind of take Rome into a different route, more of a holy Roman Empire, you could say. But there were 10 major persecutions that happened from the time of the apostles unto 325 AD. Now you might be thinking, okay, Corey, yeah, but as we look at this list of these, these 10 persecutions and some of the years that are on there, at least four of them took place during last week's message, during the Ephesus church period. Well, as I said, it encompasses the entire Roman Empire, but okay, I'll bite. Let's just say, well, maybe it's not these 10. You know what I do find interesting? See that last one that's on your list there? What's his name? Diocletian? 303 AD was when he came into power. Anybody want to take a guess as to how long his reign was? Ten years. And wouldn't you know that many historians consider Diocletian's reign to be of the most fierce and the most brutal and the most bitter in all of pagan Rome's history. More on these guys in a little bit. That was the commendation, though. That was what they did well. Now we jump down to the condemnation. Some things that Jesus had to say that, oh, man, you guys should have corrected this last church period, but you didn't, so it's still continuing, and Satan's army is growing. He has here on the condemnation that there were some that called themselves Jews, but they weren't. They were lying. Or were they? How this works out is you see on your outline that the misplacing of the Jew in the Bible, it ended up leading to many false and corrupt doctrines that started showing up coincidentally in this time. Because of origin and the school in Alexandria, Egypt, and all the disciples they were making at that seminary school, all of his false works and all of his false teachings we saw last week, they start popping up and they start going forth. And here's what they start coming up with. They have covenant and reform theology, which really is very, very similar to Calvinism and predestination. In other words, you have no free will. God has already chosen who he wants to be saved and who he wants to go to hell. Is that what the Bible says? No. It's unbiblical. But there are people who take scriptures passages and twist them and take them out of context and make them say what they wanted to say and that's how you come up with an entire doctrine an entire following such as this same thing with baptismal regeneration we saw it last week with origin but it really started picking up because they took acts 238 out of context when peter said repent and be baptized for the remission of sins now can anybody tell me in acts chapter 2 Who's the audience that Peter is talking to? Ethan. That's Acts 8, actually. Acts chapter 2 is... Jews and people who converted over to Judaism. Proselytes. They were converts. And they were the Jewish people who specifically at that time had a part in saying, condemn Jesus Christ, put Him to the cross. Peter's message was to them only. It was not a worldwide universal gospel message that all of us needed to hear. We'll cover that at a later date. But this started popping up. There were people who believed that, saying, no, you must be baptized so that the Holy Spirit can come and live inside of you. Well, according to Romans 8, the Bible says that if you have not the Spirit in you, then you are none of His. If you call upon the name of the Lord to save you, believing by faith that Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins, that's enough. You receive the Spirit of God at that moment in time, the Bible says. Any work that is connected with your salvation, it's a false gospel, the Bible says. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This starts popping up during this time period. The speaking of tongues. 1 Corinthians 1.22 and 14.22 are very, very key passages that you should be able to remember. 122, 1422. You know what tongues are for? 
Chapter 122 says that tongues are a sign for the Jews. Tongues were a sign gift. It was a way that people could speak in a foreign language who previously had no former training. It's like last week, I asked you, do you speak a lick of Spanish? No. no. Imagine going to Mexico and all of a sudden, Caleb just goes, ¿Dónde está la biblioteca, Brian? And just starts rattling off sentence after sentence after sentence in, in Spanish. Awesome. Impossible in today's day and age because we have a completed Bible. But back in the book of Acts, they didn't have completed Bibles and there were people all over who didn't realize that their Messiah had come. And they needed to hear, what do we need to do to be saved? Do we keep the law still? So the disciples and the apostles would go into town, and it was a town that they didn't speak the dialect or the language of that day, and they would start speaking that language and dialect so that people could hear and understand them. And people were getting saved. And 1 Corinthians 14.22 says that not only is it for Jews, but it's for unbelieving Jews. That's why the book of Acts, they're going out to Jerusalem and Judea, reaching out to all of the Jews, God's chosen people, to receive the gospel. Again, apostolic healing. We can check that out. Check out those passages earlier. They get a lot of it from Moses and what he was doing, but it was a sign gift to Israel that they might believe that Moses was the messenger of God. Same thing with Jesus. He did the sign gift so that they would believe Jesus is Lord. And they knew He's our Messiah. He is our capital P prophet that Deuteronomy 18 says we should be looking for. Now we know He's the one. We need to believe what He has to say. Eternal security. Believing that if you get saved, you can do something or not do something that would lose your salvation. Well, I got news for you. Matthew 24, the book of Hebrews book of James, these are all books that people use to say you can lose your salvation, but the only problem is the context of all of those books are Jewish in nature. There are ways that people can lose their salvation in the Old Testament, and then again during the tribulation period. That's not the time and frame that we're living in. In the tribulation period, as we're going to see here in a couple weeks, God goes back to using Israel as His main vehicle to get the gospel out to people. And then post-millennial and amillennialism, that Jesus Christ is going to... They say the false doctrine of it is that Jesus Christ comes back after the thousand years. So in a sense, you and I, Christians, are going to usher in Christ's return once we literally evangelize and lead every single human being on the face of the planet to Jesus Christ. Does the world seem like they all want to get saved right now? No. That's what that belief says. Jesus Christ only comes back after we lead everyone to saving faith in Christ. And all millennialism leans that there is no millennial reign, which, as we're soon going to see here in Revelation, there is. But do you see the picture here? There were people during this time of 200 to 325 A.D. that were taking Scripture passages that were specifically written to the Jews, to Israel, that had no application practically to us in the church age. And they were twisting it out of context. And as a result, you have this false doctrine creeping into the church. That's why God said... It's blasphemy to say that you are a Jew, to say that this passage is for me in the church age. And they're not. We see it happening and popping up here. And then the correction. Believe God's wisdom over man's wisdom. That's what God is getting them to see, and that's what He wanted the Bible believers of that time to go out and to reach out to these, these misguided Bible believers or so-called Bible believers. God means what He says, and He says what He means. Just believe His book. You don't need to believe a man behind a podium. That's why everything we present, we present the Bible with. There are Scripture passages you can go and look up. That's why we disciple in this church, because every single doctrine, every single point that we make, there are Bible verses that back it up if you just let the book say what it says. If you let God interpret His book 
the way that he meant it to be interpreted. Wow, are we almost done? No. So back to this whole point. Why couldn't people just go out to these Nicolaitans, these conquerors of the common man? Why couldn't they go out and win them to saving faith in Christ, or at least the, the misguided ones? Why couldn't they disciple them? Why couldn't they take the Bible and show them where they were wrong so that they stopped this false doctrine and so that pagan Rome stopped persecuting them? Well, very simply put, again, if you were living back in 200 AD, what would your faith be like? What would you be found doing? Would you be coming to church every single Sunday and Wednesday? Or would you be on the run, living in a different place, not sure if you're going to get a meal the next day or the day after that, saying goodbye to your home, probably saying goodbye to your parents, your family, your friends, everything that you have here, constantly on the run for your life. There's a history book that used to be taught in high school, actually. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And this book, by a man named uh, John Fox, documented from the records of history that have survived over the last, well, he wrote this approximately in 1500 AD, the previous 1500 years, all of the documents that survived and lasted, he preserved and compiled in a book that, again, for many, many years, was taught in high schools as history. But I think because of certain of the stories that are in here, we find that Oh, it was a little bit too nitty-gritty. Oh, it shined too much of a light on Rome and what God had to say about Rome. So this first persecution on your outline there, persecution of Nero, he was the very first guy who decided, you know what, i got to shut up all of these Christians because they're disturbing the way that I run my empire. Here's just some background of what he was like and see if he was a jolly old fellow. Nero even refined upon cruelty and contrived all manner of punishments for the Christians that the most infernal imagination could design. In particular, he had some sewed up in skins of wild beasts and then worried or eaten about by dogs until they expired. And others, Nero, dressed in shirts made stiff with wax fixed to axle trees, in other words, a big spike, kind of a pyre-looking thing, had them fixed on that, and he set them on fire in his gardens in order to illuminate them. That was Nero under that first persecution. Again, jolly old fellow. The second persecution under uh, Domitian. Timothy. This is Timothy of the Bible. A first and second Timothy. Paul's disciple. It's interesting because you read First and Second Timothy, you're like, man, Timothy's having a bad day. Just like those guys are having bad days, just like we have bad days. He's got these troublemakers in the church, and Paul keeps telling him, man, why didn't you kick them out after the first time I told you? Why are they still in the church? And you think, is Timothy going to make it as a pastor? Is he going to chuck it? Is he just going to walk away and save his own skin? Timothy was a celebrated disciple of Paul and Bishop of Ephesus. When he zealously governed the church until 97 AD, at this period, as the pagans were about to celebrate a feast called Catagogian, Timothy, meaning the procession, severely reproved them for their ridiculous idolatry, which so exasperated the people that they fell upon him with their clubs. They beat him to death. Beat him in so dreadful a manner that he expired of the bruises two days later. Third persecution. In Mount Ararat, many were crucified, crowned with thorns, and had spears run into their sides in imitation of Christ's passion. So everything your Savior went through to pay the price for your sin for all of eternity, that's how people were killed, mocking what he did for them. Eustachacius, I think, a brave and successful Roman commander, was by the emperor ordered to join in an idolatrous sacrifice to celebrate some of his own victories, but his faith, being a Christian in heart, was so much greater than his vanity that he nobly refused. Enraged at the denial, 
the ungrateful emperor forgot the service of the skillful commander and ordered him and his entire family to be martyred. Fourth persecution under Marcus Aurelius. Germanicus, a young man, but a true Christian, being delivered to the wild beasts on account of his faith, behaved with such astonishing courage that several pagans became converted to a faith which inspired such fortitude. Remember our man Polycarp last week? Give me two hours in prayer. By the time he's done, one hour in prayer. By the time he's done, both of his prison guards are praying to receive Christ as Savior. Felicitatus, an illustrious Roman lady of a considerable family and the most shining virtues, was a devout Christian. She had seven sons whom she had educated with the most exemplary piety. Januarius, the eldest, was scourged and pressed to death with weights. Felix and Phillips, the two next, had their brains dashed out with clubs. Sylvanus, the fourth, was murdered by being thrown from a precipice off a cliff. And the three younger sons, Alexander, Vitalis, and Marshall, were beheaded. The mother was beheaded with the same sword as the latter three. She saw all seven of them murdered in front of her eyes. Having a bad day? Having a rough week? Hear this, though. Why wouldn't they stop? But though persecuting malice raged, yet the gospel shone with resplendent brightness. And firm as an impregnable rock withstood the attacks of its boisterous enemies with success. Tertullian, who lived in this age, informs us that if the Christians had collectively withdrawn themselves from the Roman territories, the empire itself would be greatly depopulated. They could have moved, and pagan Rome would be no more. Why stay? Because they had a mission. They had a mission statement. They had a purpose to be a light in a dark place, shining on a hill, to draw all of those who are tired of the darkness to that light. Cilicia. Cecilia, sorry, a young lady of good family in Rome, was married to a gentleman named Valerian. She converted her husband and brother, who were beheaded. And the Maximus, or officer, who led them to execution, becoming their convert, suffered the same fate. The lady was placed naked in a scalding bath, and having continued there a considerable time, her head was struck off with a sword, A.D. 222. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine you're marched out in front of your captures naked, humiliated, put to shame, seeing your husband, your brother, your father, your mother, your sister beheaded, and you're about to be put into a scalding bath? Sixth persecution under Maximus. During this persecution raised by Maximinus, numberless Christians were slain without trial, and buried indiscriminately in heaps, sometimes 50 or 60 being cast into a pit together. Talk about mass graves without the least decency. Seventh persecution. Julian, a native of Cilicia, as we are informed by Chrysostom, was seized upon for being a Christian. That was his crime. He was put into a leather bag together with a number of serpents and scorpions, and in that condition thrown into the sea. Peter, a young man, amiable for the superior qualities of his body and mind, was beheaded for refusing to sacrifice to Venus, a false god. He said, I'm astonished you should sacrifice to an infamous woman whose debaucheries even your own historians record and whose life consisted of such actions as your laws would punish. You want me to sacrifice to this false god whom you would have thrown in jail and beheaded for the things that she did? No, I shall offer the true God the acceptable sacrifice of praises and prayers. Agatha, a Sicilian lady, was not more remarkable for her personal and acquired endowments than her piety. Her beauty was such 
that Quintian, governor of Sicily, became enamored with her and made many attempts upon her chastity without success. In order to gratify his passions with the greater conveniency, he put the virtuous lady into the hands of Aphrodosia, a very infamous and licentious woman, in other words, a whore. The wretch tried every artifice to win her to the desired prostitution, but found all her efforts were vain, for her chastity was impregnable. She wouldn't give up her virginity. And she well knew that virtue alone could procure true happiness. Virtue. Sound familiar? Aphrodosia acquainted Quintian with the inefficacy of her endeavors, who, enraged to be foiled in his designs, changed his lust into resentment. On her confessing that she was a Christian, he determined to gratify his revenge as he could not his passion. Pursuant to his orders, she was scourged, burnt with red-hot irons, and torn with sharp hooks. Having borne these torments with admirable fortitude, she was next laid naked upon live coals intermingled with glass, and then being carried back to prison, she there expired on February 5th, 251. Having a bad day? Theodora, a beautiful young lady of Antioch, on refusing to sacrifice the Roman idols, was condemned to the stews that her virtue might be sacrificed to the brutality of lust. Meaning she was going to be used for all of the Roman centurions. Didymus, a Christian, disguised himself in the habit of a Roman soldier. Listen to this adventure story. He went to the house, informed Theodora who he was, and advised her to make her escape in his clothes. This being affected and a man found in the brothel instead of a beautiful lady, meaning the guy took her place in the brothel, and the soldier who came found her, and he's like, you are not who I thought you were. You're a dude. Because she had escaped. Didymus was taken before the president, to whom, confessing the truth and owning that he was a Christian, the sentence of death was immediately pronounced against him. That's how far that guy went to save one life. One girl. Theodora, hearing that her deliverer was likely to suffer, came to the judge, threw herself at his feet. You talk about a love story. And begged that the sentence might fall on her as the guilty person. But death to the cri death to the cries of the innocent and insensible to the cause of justice, the inflexible judge condemned both when they were executed accordingly, being first beheaded and their bodies afterward burnt. The eighth persecution, Valerian. Stephen, Bishop of Rome, was beheaded the same year and about the same time Saturninus, the pious Orthodox Bishop of Toulouse, refusing to sacrifice to idols, was treated with all the barbarous indignities imaginable and fastened by the feet to the tail of a bull. Upon the signal given, the enraged animal was driven down the steps of a temple by which the worthy martyr's brains were dashed out. How's your week going? Had it rough? Ninth persecution. Quentin was a Christian and a native of Rome, but determined to attempt the propagation of the gospel in Gaul, with one Lucian they preached together in Amiens, after which Lucian went to Beamaris, which he was martyrs, martyred. Sorry, Quentin remained in Picardy, cities are hard, Picardy, and was very zealous in his ministry. Being seized upon as a Christian, he was stretched with pulleys until his joints were dislocated. His body was then torn with wire scourges and boiling oil and pitch poured on his naked flesh. Lighted torches were applied to his sides and armpits. And after he had been thus tortured, he was remanded back to prison and died of the barbarities he had suffered. October 31st, 287 AD. For what again? Being a Christian? That's how far you go to punish somebody? Does that make logical sense? No, but does it make logical sense to most of the elite and most of the government when they say, you know, all of these governmental things that they're enforcing on us and all this cancel culture and woke culture, they're coming for us. Oh, you guys are crazy. You conspiracy theorists, you think it's gonna happen to you. I'm sorry, getting tortured and getting burned in my armpits and my sides after being stretched on a pulley just because I believe differently than you?
Tenth persecution under Diocletian, the most brutal, according to historians. Here's a brief description of it. No distinction was made of age or sex. Of age or sex. It didn't spare you from torture. The name of Christian was so obnoxious to the pagans that all indiscriminately fell sacrifices to their opinions. Many houses were set on fire and whole Christian families perished in the flames. And others had stones fastened about their necks and being tied together, together were driven into the sea. So you were for sure to drown. The persecution became general in all the Roman provinces, but more particularly in the east as it lasted 10 years. Ye may be tried that ye have tribulation ten days. Hmm. And remember, God's timetable, days are different from years. For him, ten days is kind of like ten years to us. Racks, scourges, swords, daggers, crosses, poison and famine were made use of in various parts to dispatch the Christians. And invention, listen to this, invention was exhausted to devise tortures against such as had no crime, but thinking differently. 1500s, this guy wrote this. The crime of thinking differently. Romanus, a native of Palestine, was deacon of the church of Caesarea at the time of the commencement of Diocletian's persecution. Being condemned for his faith at Antioch, he was scourged, put to the rack, his body torn with hooks, his flesh cut with knives, his face scarified, his teeth were knocked and beaten from their sockets, and his hair plucked up by the roots. Oh, soon after he was ordered to be strangled. After all that, now he can die. November 17th, A.D. 303. Having a bad day? Having a bad week? So did they. And understand something. Every single one of us, and some more than others, have legitimate problems and issues that we're going through right now. And I'm not belittling any of it. As hard as it is to read stories like this, it's good to do so every now and then. To understand and become acquainted and familiar with what others went through. Because it causes us, though our problems be real, though our issues be genuine, it causes us to take our eyes on somebody else and see what they've been through. It causes us to see that, man, maybe things aren't so bad. It could be worse. At least I still have breath. At least I'm still living. That's why we go through these stories. To get a glimpse of what things were like just because you believe something different than what anybody else did. Just because you wanted to share your faith with somebody else. Just because you went by the name Christian. What was their crime? One last story. Timothy, a deacon of Mauritania, and Mara, his wife, had not been united together by the bands of wedlock above three weeks when they were separated from each other by the persecution. This is Diocletian. Timothy, being apprehended as a Christian, was carried before Arianus, the governor of Phoebus, who, knowing that he had kept the holy scriptures commanded him to deliver them up to be burnt. Now I ask you, someone comes to your door tonight and says, your Bible and every Bible that's in this house, give them up to me right now to be burnt. What would you say? You know what Timothy's response was? Had I children... I would sooner deliver them up to be sacrificed than part with the Word of God. 
The governor, being much incensed at this reply, ordered his eyes to be put out with red-hot irons, saying, The books shall at least be useless to you, for you shall not see to read them. Timothy's patience under the operation of having red-hot irons gouging his eyes out. His patience under the operation was so great that the governor grew more exasperated. He therefore, in order, if possible, to overcome his fortitude, ordered Timothy to be hung up by the feet with a weight tied about his neck and a gag in his mouth. In this state, Mara, his wife, tenderly, tenderly urged him for her sake to recant, to give up his scriptures, to give up his profession of Christ. But when the gag was taken out of his mouth, instead of consenting to his wife's entreaties, he greatly blamed her mistaken love and declared his resolution of dying for his faith. The consequence was that Mara resolved to imitate and follow his courage and fidelity and either to accompany or follow him home to glory. The governor, after trying in vain to alter her, her resolution, ordered her to be tortured, which was executed with great severity. After this, Timothy and Mara were crucified near each other, A.D. 304. Take a look at verse 9 again. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. Do you see that in these stories? These people lost everything. Everything was taken from them. Every one was taken from them. Poverty. But they were rich. Ephesians 1.7 In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, and because of that, it's according to the riches of His grace. Colossians 1.27 To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Not only are you rich beyond your wildest dreams because your sins have been forgiven you, but you have the creator of the universe living inside of you right now. Bad day? Jesus Christ lives and dwells in you if you're saved. And not only that, Timothy and Mara, as we're going to see them one day, they can say this for all assuredness. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. You know what the wisdom and knowledge of God are? That book you have on your laps right now. The book that sometimes even I will just casually thumb through. And I forget the fact that these pages have been baptized in the blood of the martyrs in order to get it to me here in this day and age, to get it to you here tonight. People literally had hell to pay. We ought not to take this for granted. We ought not to take this history for granted. If you have problems and issues. These people didn't hide it. They didn't hide. Timothy and Mara didn't hide their copies of the Scriptures. Don't you hide it either. Let your light shine. So remember, as we conclude, I just lost my first... Fear none of those things. Look at verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. But he just said, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Yeah, but you're going to be tried. He just said, fear none of those things thou shalt suffer. But you're going to have tribulation ten days. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Be thou faithful unto the bitter myrrh of death. And I will give thee a crown of life. Anybody tell me what 2 Timothy 3.12 says? 
Is that a hand or no? no. Sam, say it. Yeah, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer Christ Yea, and all that will live godly. Do you want to live like God? You're going to suffer persecution. So march boldly through your hallways of school tomorrow with a Bible in your arm and to the wind with whatever they say about you. Give a rip for what they call you. Lift up the name of Christ in your schools to your teachers, to your classmates, to your family members. The people that you're involved in in extracurricular activities, lift up the banner of Christ and fear none of those things that shall happen to you. You can check out this application for Bible believers later on tonight. Check out these verses later. But God's wisdom far exceeds any wisdom we can come up with or imagine. Following His wisdom over your own does not always lead to the easy route, as we've seen. And it certainly doesn't promote worldly comfort. But you're going to be safe in the center of God's will. Just think about any storm analogy that you've seen in the Bible. The disciples on the boat when the storm's coming. It's a picture of life when you're going through the thick of it. What's Christ doing? He's sleeping in the hold of the ship because he's got this. Fear none of those things which shall happen to you. They didn't. And they got a crown as a result of it. We got it good right now. The worst that happens to us, we get made fun of. We lose friends. We lose popularity and reputation. That's the worst that really happens to us in this day and age. So be bold, be brave, be courageous. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray.